Shift Talk podcast. We're so excited to have you back here with us. And if you're a first-time listener, welcome. We're excited to have you as well. Uh, by now, if you have been here, you know the drill. We're going to get right into some movie discussions here in just a moment. But I do want to go ahead and do a little housekeeping uh, for you. Uh, first and foremost, we are going to be reviewing Snowpiercer today by Bong Joon-ho. Uh, released in 2013, stars Chris Evans. It was an absolute joy to watch and discuss. So we think you guys are really going to enjoy what we have to say about it. Hopefully you do. Um, but here is uh, your spoiler warning for Snowpiercer. If you have not checked it out yet and it's on your list or you've never heard of it and you want to go watch it before you listen, uh, here is your spoiler warning. So don't say I didn't warn you about that. Um, but yeah, there's that. Um you will notice in the title this week, uh, we are not doing our hot takes, our, our normal section that we've done the past few weeks. Uh, we're, we decided to put hot takes on the bench for a week, and we're going to be doing a different um, a different segment to open up where we take a movie and each of us agree on a different change to make to the cast or the director's seat uh, to improve the movie's quality. And this week, we're just starting off with a, a layup here. Uh, we're going with Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Uh, going into the Star Wars prequel territory where there are many, many things that uh, could be changed in those movies to make them better. So we thought that was a really solid place to start because there are no shortage. There is no shortage of options uh, for us there to change things. So we hope you guys enjoy this little bit of a shift in um, content here. Uh, I think it went really well, and we'll... You know, if you guys have feedback on that or you enjoy the segment, definitely let us know. Which leads me into the typical uh, plug here for our social media. Well, you can find us at on Twitter at, at Shift Talking. Find us on Facebook at Shift Talk. And you can subscribe to us on Podbean if you do not use Apple Podcasts. Uh, Podbean is a really great third-party service um, that we use to host our pod podcast. So if you don't have Apple products, you can find us there. But if you do have Apple products, we are on the Apple Podcasts app right now. But without further ado, we're going to get right into the first segment this week where I, again, said, you know, we're going to be talking about Attack of the Clones and making some changes to that film. Uh, so hopefully we have some good suggestions. But without further ado, we're going to get right into that. And then the review for Snowpiercer will follow. Again, we appreciate all the support. Thank you for listening. And here we go. So, yeah, the changes that I would make to Attack of the Clones, or the big change, because um, I think Attack of the Clones is the worst Star Wars movie. Uh, failure almost in every way, which I always felt that way since I was a kid. But um, I would change the director, because I think the cast, for the most part, is pretty solid. Um, I just think they didn't, they weren't, they didn't have a lot of material to work with. And even though uh, I don't think the script is all that great, I think the director that I would choose to change can elevate the material, and that's uh, Christopher Nolan. If I could make one change, I would put Christopher Nolan as the director for this movie because I think, one, he's proven he's really great with blockbusters with things like Inception and Interstellar and The Dark Knight. He... Even if he doesn't have a great script, he can still make a really entertaining movie, which he proves with The Dark Knight Rises. And I think the fact that he only uses CGI when he has to 
and he only, you know, really tries to use practical effects, I think would be really, really good and something pretty unique for uh, the prequel trilogy. Because the prequel trilogy just put so much reliance on CGI, and that really hurt the movie because it didn't age very well, and it wasn't very interesting. And so I think his use of practical effects and just the fact that he's a, a really great filmmaker, I think that would have really helped out that that movie a lot. And I think that could have really changed the course of, of Star Wars and how we look at the prequel trilogies. Because he was working at that time. He put out uh, Attack of the Clones came out in 2002, and he put out Memento two years pre like earlier. So if I could change one thing, I would make Christopher Nolan the director, because I think he could have done something really well with Star Wars. I think he just has the the I mean, now looking at his career now, I think he's proven that he could have done something really well with that, especially being young and being a lot like hungrier and wanting to really do his best with something like Star Wars. For sure. That's just that's a really good choice. And I'm just sitting here trying to wrap my mind around what a jarring change it would be to go from Phantom Menace to a Christopher Nolan directed Attack of the Clones. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> what a jump in quality it would have to be. Because you said Attack of the Clones is the worst one, and it, it is, but Phantom Menace is also pretty bad, too, when you go back and watch it now. Oh, yeah, no, Phantom Menace is pretty bad, too. I think Phantom Menace is the worst, but you can't really go wrong. They're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, I think. They are. Uh, those people trilogy, huge disappointment. Yeah, they're both, they're both bad, bad movies, but being a Star Wars fan, there's still certain things that I can enjoy about it. I still at times can get in the mood to watch them, but there's no doubt about it. There, there's no way to defend them. They're bad movies. That is true. I, I, I find myself like my wife has never seen the prequels and she wasn't a huge star Wars fan before we met. And I've, I've found myself excited to watch the prequels just because I want to see how like she views them. Like she knows very little about them, but I, I w- I've always wanted to get her kind of like take on it, not being a huge star Wars fan, just what she thinks. Um, Christopher Nolan, though, like you said, I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to formulate it, formulate it in my head, like what what the changes would be like, because I think he definitely would not. He would have, you know, respectfully told George Lucas, like, listen, like we're gonna cut the budget in half with all this CGI right here. We're gonna save a bunch of money, uh, and we're gonna go out and hire uh, a better actor to play uh, Anakin Skywalker. That's that's probably how the first meeting would have went. We're not going to use Hayden Christensen, but yeah. Um, it, so it I is think it's your change is going to be in the acting uh, department. It, it'll, it'll probably, yeah, it's probably safe to assume it's going to be there. Um, but with Nolan, like you, you touched on, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't like what we think of him today. Like he wasn't up to those standards yet, but it is interesting to note that, you know, George Lucas did he did pursue other directors before he even made the Phantom Menace? I mean, he he reached out to um, multiple directors. Uh, I believe he reached out to Ron Howard. I think he reached out to Robert Zemeckis um, and even Steven Spielberg. Um, I think he reached out to uh, to work on the prequels. And I think the consensus uh, from something I was reading earlier, the consensus basically it was all these directors were honored that he would ask them, but they kind of told him, you know, this is your, this is your baby in a sense. Uh, so you should do it. Um, I wish he wouldn't have taken that advice, but they, I do think they, they probably saw the script. 
to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they probably respectfully uh, declined after reading that, but... Uh, uh, you wish that he would have given it to Ron Howard just because he did Solo and you think Solo's great? I, I do. I mean, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but, you know, for... Not to turn this into a solo podcast, but it it just is so impressive to me that they had a director change and a production change so far into the life cycle for solo. And Ron Howard came in and just, I mean, made a really, really fun movie that was really good. So yeah, I think he would have been a solid choice too. People sleep on Ron Howard. He's put out some great movies. Oh, for sure. That's definitely true. Uh, I mean, any, any of the directors that I, that I read about, uh, Lucas pitching the idea to, I mean, I think they would have all been better because I, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've watched and listened a lot um, about the kind of behind the scenes of the prequels. And it's just, there's a lot of factors. I mean, it's not fair to really, I don't know if it's always fair to kind of dump on George Lucas for how he approached the prequels, because I think that his, his devotion to, you know, his own style is kind of what gave us Star Wars to begin with. But yeah, it just didn't work the second time around. And uh, I definitely think Nolan would have been solid. I mean, he, he I, I find I find very few ways in which he could have messed that up. Um, you know, he would have actually given them uh, direction, which I think is pretty key for a director. Because again, not to dump on, keep dumping on George, but the biggest flaw with the prequels to me is that a lot of times you'll have actors that are in scenes and it just seems like they're in a bad high school play. It just seems like they're reading lines and they're not, they're not actually acting. They're just kind of reading what's on the paper in front of them. And I think that's a huge problem that, that George struggles with and definitely struggled with in those prequels. So Nolan would have easily been better in that department. Completely agree. Uh, Matthew, you want to go ahead and, Give us your change. Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of touched on it earlier, but uh, mine is pretty much a layup. It's it's not uh, it's not profound. You know, you could probably all see this coming and probably agree. Um, and it, it's kind of a cop out because it is a pretty popular you know story from back in the day. But my change would obviously be to not cast Hayden Christensen as Anakin um, in Attack of the Clones. And I would replace him with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, it's, you know, pretty widely known, at least on, you know, in the Star Wars fandom that uh, George met with Leonardo and he pitched him pretty hard about being Anakin. And Leonardo definitely, uh, I, I, I read an article where he said he, he definitely, you know, kind of thought about it for a while, but he ultimately declined because... I think he said something along the lines of he wasn't sure if he was ready to, you know, jump into something that big, which maybe was a polite way of him also saying that he read the script and he didn't want to be a part of that. Maybe, maybe that's, that's what it was. But I think with someone of DiCaprio's quality, you know, being in a series like Star or a franchise like Star Wars and playing such a linchpin type character like Anakin Skywalker, it would have totally, um, he he, his talent would have shined through. Uh, I think all the terrible writing and you know awkward CGI and just poor direction. I I really think he would have at least kind of catalog been a catalyst for the movies uh, for episodes two and three. Um, yeah, there's not really much else to say. I mean, he's just 
he's one of the best actors of this current time, and I think he would have been an absolute slam dunk cast um, if George was able to reel him in. Yeah, he uh, he definitely read the script before turning it down. Oh, would have at least made me believe that he actually hated sand. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point that Jake brought up earlier before we were recording. Is I mean, just imagine Leo just saying some of the lines that that Hayden Christensen had to say. I mean, the whole sand scene in general, and and his uh, you know, his monologue about um. His monologue to Padme is just—I mean, it's an all-timer in terms of cringe dialogue now. But I, I don't know—I don't know how Leo would have—I uh, don't know if he could have carried that. He probably still would have flopped on that part. It's—it's it's hard to picture Leo reading this line. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Academy Award-winning Leo DiCaprio, one of the best actors of all time. I feel like just the moment he probably saw that line in the movie, he's like, I, you know, I can't do this, George. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, he was supposed to be a uh, Spider-Man. What's before Tobey Maguire. Yeah, it was before Sam Raimi was also director. It was, it was like a Spider-Man movie that James Cameron was going to do. Leonardo DiCaprio oh. was going to be in it. There was a screenplay. If you guys have not checked out the screenplay, please do, because it is bonkers. <laughs> So wait, oh you mean you mean the same James Cameron that is so against superhero movies? Yes, it's popular to be against superhero movies now because they're. It's the, almost like he's against them because he knows they're better than the movies he's made. I think he's just a little bitter. I'm not the biggest James Cameron fan, but uh, yeah, I bet I'm gonna have to do that because I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. And uh, oh, dude, it's wild! It's not even Spider-Man. It's wild. <laughs> It was a wild screenplay. Like the ideas they had, it was insane. I think they also they pitched him on being Iron Man as well before they made the original Iron Man. I think they I think they wanted him and Tom Cruise before they settled on Downey, which obviously we know kind of was the best decision they could have made. But it is interesting. He's he's kind of been he's been at the forefront of a lot of uh, franchises. Oh yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just saying it's funny too because like he, I don't even think he's been in a franchise movie. No, that's 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 the whole thing I was gonna talk about is that you know he he seems like the type of actor now definitely that he is gonna be picky and choosy about what he's in. Like obviously he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and that was his first movie in a while, but he's to the point now where he can just kind of hand pick what he wants to be in because that's that's the level of you know, that's the status he has. But I mean, back in the day to be like a still, you know, pretty young actor, like he definitely had already had a lot of success, but to turn down star Wars, I just feel like that's such a, that that's like a boss level move. I mean, at the time and just to do that as well as like turn down Marvel and no telling how, how many other roles he's turned down. It is interesting to think about because I don't think it's necessarily about, him thinking he's above doing things like that. I think he probably just knows that when you're in a franchise like that, you know, you're always going to be tied to it and you're always going to be thought of as there's, there's a big risk that you're always going to be thought of, of, Oh, you're the, that's the uh, star Wars guy, or that's the guy from the Marvel movies. Um, so maybe, maybe that goes into it. I'm putting words in his mouth. Maybe, maybe there's other reasons why, but it is interesting to think about. But uh, I think uh, 
you know that there's there's not much else you can say about replacing Hayden Christensen with Leo. It's kind of like if you you know instead of Matthew Delvadova, you gave LeBron James like Clay Thompson to play with in in Cleveland. Um, it's kind of just yeah, that's obvious. It would be better. So, uh, pretty boring stuff for me. But I do think it since it was something that could have happened and was a possibility at the time. I think that's why it kind of became my choice. But uh, Jake, that leaves you with your change for Attack of the Clones, and um, what change would you like to submit? So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go kind of the same route. I'm also gonna replace Hayden Christensen, and I'm going to replace him with Ron Gosling. Ron Gosling was 22 at the time this movie came out, and he had been in a few movies, but obviously he's not the mega star at that time that he is now. Uh, but I definitely think that. You know, I don't want to hate on Hayden Christensen too much. I don't think how bad this movie is. I don't think it's really his fault. Like we went into how bad the script was. You know, any any actor is going to struggle with that. So if the script doesn't change, then the movie's still going to be pretty bad. But I think bringing in a an actor like Ryan Gosling, who has showed that he can he can play a charming but also dark top role uh, with some of his performances like half nelson and drive and the place beyond the pines you know he's shown that that kind of darker side where he's obviously an incredibly talented handsome movie star that's charming so he's got that aspect going for him but he can also play a dark character which i think would be perfect for anakin skywalker because you're supposed to see this the whole point of the characters you're supposed to be pulling for this guy you're supposed to like him but also seeing the signs of him becoming Darth Vader, and I think Ryan Gosling could have could have really done a good job with that, playing both roles um, with the right script. Now, it's hard for me. Here's another example of a line from Attack of the Clones. And I just I want you guys to just picture Ryan Gosling or Leonardo DiCaprio saying this line. And the line is, "I'm haunted by the kiss that you should have never have given me." Now I don't I don't know an actor in all of Hollywood that could could say that line with a straight face or even make it believable. Um, I want to memorize it, that entire monologue. It's just so it's it's so good now because it's not good, but it's just yeah, yeah you're right, you're hundred percent right. It really is like you just said. It's 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 kind of humorous to go back and watch and listen to some of these lines. It it almost makes it for a more enjoyable experience now. Uh, of course, you know, the first time we watched this movie, it came out in 2002, so that makes us eight years old. So, you know, we're distracted by the lightsabers and all the fighting going on. But as you go back and watch it, and you really start paying attention to the dialogue, it's, it's pretty incredible that this stuff was actually written and put in putting into a film script. So oh, yeah, I know that's a hundred percent right. That's a pretty generic choice too. Obviously Ryan Gosling is going to make any movie. It's going to make the movie better than Hayden Christensen. Um, but like I said, Hayden Christensen, he's not a great actor, but and he is bad in this movie, but I don't think he's real bad in revenge of the Sith. And I, I think that's obviously the best movie, the prequel trilogy. And I think he's, I think he's passable in that movie, but like I said, this the script, I mean, Natalie Portman's bad in, in Attack of the Clones, and obviously she's a great actress. So 
it's hard to really put too much blame on any of the actors in this movie. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, it, I, I hate to keep coming back to it as well, but it, when the writing is bad, it just it it drags everything else down. And writing in this sense can mean you know plot progression or just the general screenplay of what everyone is saying. And yeah, it, it's just really hard when you have really really bad dialogue and you can't you can't do it. But I do think Ryan Gosling would be a solid choice, and I I, I had not considered that. Um, he, he would be a really good choice. He's at, he's super funny too. Uh, if you have not seen um, the Nice Guys, um, that's that's actually I mean one of that's one of the better movies I've seen in the last year. I, I was late to see it, but he is he is really really good in that movie. It is a um, great movie. And yeah, I, I think he would have definitely pulled off the uh, conflicted character of Anakin. Um, much better. And there than, would definitely be more chemistry between him and uh, Natalie Portman. I would, I would think. I mean, there's, I mean, yeah. there's no way it could be worse. No, absolutely not. And I want to also go back and say Hayden Christensen probably did everything just like George told him to. And it's not, it's not really, you know, when George probably decided to direct, you know, he he probably listened to everything George said. And I can't fault him for that. And he seems like a really nice guy. I know he went back and uh, whenever Star Wars, the new Star Wars park opened at Disney World, I know that he um, he was there and kind of, you know, just chopping it up with a bunch of like fans and like taking pictures with kids and stuff. So, you know, I'm sure he's a really nice guy and, and it's nothing. Is he the best actor in the world? No, but I think it was just kind of a perfect storm of he was a young, inexperienced actor playing in, you know, at the time, the biggest movies of all time um, with a director who was really just kind of off his game. And so it, I don't want it to be a rose session because I'm sure he's a really fine act, uh, fine person. Um, but yeah, Ryan Gosling, another solid choice, I think. I would agree. I love Ryan Gosling. My guy. Well, his chops in, he has, you know, the romantic the rom-com chops and obviously we know that he's in one of his more famous roles in the notebook. I mean, he would have, I think it's hard to imagine him not having chemistry with Natalie Portman in that, in that aspect. So it's unbelievable. Like he could be, I know this doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but to me, it's kind of believable that he could be Luke Skywalker's dad. Like they kind of look a little bit similar. Mm yeah, I think so. Too. I mean, like Drive and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Like he's stoic, but he's not like boring. He's like very. He's one of those where he can be like so emotive without talking. Yeah, very good physical good actor. He gets very underplayed, and like that, he's very underrated in that respect. Because mm-hmm. I mean, there are scenes in Blade Runner twenty forty nine where he doesn't talk, but like just in his eyes, you can tell that there's been like a, a great shift in like, his character's emotional state. Yeah, that is definitely true. Um, well, I don't have anything else. Um, are you guys ready to talk about Snowpiercer? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, cool. Um, I'll just, I'll just kind of briefly offer up my intro here on this. You know, I had never seen Snowpiercer. Obviously I had just, I've just recently watched Parasite, uh, from Bong Joon-ho. Um, and this is also by Bong Joon-ho. 
Um, it was his first English film, uh, but you know, you really couldn't. I didn't notice any hiccups. Um, you know, the screenplay was co-written by himself and Kelly Masterson, who is an American screenwriter. Um, so I think it was a good move on his part to, you know, kind of go in with someone who's used to making English films. Um, and it was a super solid watch. Um, you know, it's extremely entertaining. It goes for broke on some intense emotional moments. Um, you know, one of the things I most enjoyed about it and now having seen this in Parasite is just how much, how, how good Bong Joon-ho is at building tension very quickly and then holding it over kind of a long stretch of time. Uh, you know, from the very beginning of the movie, I, I knew the runtime obviously had a lot left in it, but the way that he just, uh, the way that he constructs scenes, um, you know, it just kind of had me, it had me experiencing the feeling I get when I'm watching like the, the climax of a movie, but it was 20 minutes into the movie. Um, and it's just, I don't know. That's something that I've noticed. I felt the same way with Parasite. Um, but yeah, I was a really big fan of this movie. I did not expect it. Uh, I, I, I expected to like it, but I definitely, it, it's, it's super good. Um, what did you guys think of this movie? I know that, it was y'all's first viewing of this as well, I believe, for both for both of you. This is my first time watching it. Um, yeah, I'll go. Um, yeah, this is my first time watching it. Only other two Bong Joon Ho movies I've seen at this point is Parasite and The Host, which I thought were fantastic. Um, I knew that this was an adaptation of a of a graphic novel the same name and i had known about some of the struggles that bong joon ho had making this movie due to harvey weinstein mm-hmm. i was very interested in seeing the movie um because i was wondering how it was going to turn out especially with like him, this is like being his first english language movie i know some directors can have problems with that um but i thought this film was uh fantastic i think this might be like up there for like action movies i think this was a fantastic like action movie. Um, I agree with the building of tension. I think Bong Joon Ho is moving up to be one of my favorite directors because he's one of those that like knows uh, he like knows how to use all the tools in his toolbox when making a movie, and he knows how to do it perfectly. Um, I think it's one thing I've noticed from watching his movies is that. He he like makes movies that shouldn't work. He plays around with the tone. Like he makes like almost like genre list films. Like we could call this like a sci-fi movie, but it's like so much more. Like there's comedy in it, there's uh like politics in it. It's sometimes it's it's really dramatic, sometimes it's almost like a just a pure straight action film. Sometimes it almost has like horror elements to it. And like, and that was the same thing with like his other movies that I've seen so far. So like, he really plays around with tone and genre. He does it like in a way where it's seamless. He's a really impressive filmmaker, honestly. I've been I just started getting into his movies because it's taken me a long time, and, and I'm glad I'm finally getting into it because he really is a very impressive filmmaker. And I wish a lot. I hope a lot more people start checking out his his stuff after his big win with Parasite because I think. He's a really great filmmaker, and I think this movie's fantastic. I also think it's a really smart movie. I wish more action films would be like this, where it's like really fast-paced, never bored, 
the action is fantastic, but like there's a lot of substance to the movie because this is a very very political movie. There's a lot of symbolism and, and metaphors and and which is a thing in a lot of his movies I've noticed. But yeah, I was very impressed with this movie. Very very impressed. Jake, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I've very much enjoyed it too. Um, you know, I uh, the only other movie I've seen by him is Parasite and. Parasite was honestly one of the best movies I've seen in, in the last few years, if, if I'm being truthful. I mean, it's a true, true masterpiece in my mind, and it definitely deserved uh, Best Picture. And this movie, going into it, you know, after watching Parasite, I had the highest of expectations. Uh, I really didn't know anything about the plot of the movie or anything at all, really, about it, other than he directed it. So I went into it expecting a lot, and I, no, I wasn't disappointed. I don't think it's as good as Parasite, but it was definitely, definitely a very, very good movie. And like Cruz said, it does have a lot of political stuff that I'm sure we're going to get on, get into later on. Um, you know, something that it kind of shares with Parasite, and it's very interested in com- like commentating on uh, social structure. And I think, I think both movies were very effective. And doing that, and I'm sure Matthew, I'll let you touch more uh, on this part of it. I don't want to get too too deep right off the bat, but you know, the the plot really worked. The pacing was pretty good. My only complaint about the movie was, to me, it kind of ran out of steam a little bit towards the end, and it got a little exposition heavy. Uh, but that's just kind of nitpicking. And another thing that I, I Another small nitpick that I really didn't. At times, the CGI was a little outdated to me, and it kind of took me out of the movie just a little bit. Uh, but obviously, those aren't big knocks on the movie. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out that I really, really enjoyed was the score. And there's one particular scene uh, that the score just really stood out to me. And it's the the scene where they enter the cart with the the trains like police force encounters and the guys in the mask holding the axes. Um, it's kind of like the repressive state, you know, we're going to, we're going to get into the political themes here in a minute, but you know, this has kind of a Marxist undertone to it and the, the score. And to me, that's the best scene in the movie, but the score right at the beginning of that scene just really elevates to a point that it's just very noticeable while not distracting. And that's just one of the, one of the small details that I really, really liked. Uh, so, Matthew, I'm interested to see what you have to say about it. Uh, do you want to talk more about the some of the political themes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and just to give people, you know, if you're listening to this and you have not seen Snowpiercer or didn't watch it, um, basically a very, very too long, don't read version of the plot. You know, they're in a post-apocalyptic future um you know there's these people uh that are on this um train uh after a failed climate change experiment uh basically wiped out all the life on earth um and these people are the last remaining you know members of humanity um and they're on board this train called the snowpiercer uh that is continually traveling around the globe um and that that's where that, that's the premise of the movie. So it just in case anybody is not aware. Uh, but yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts about this movie. And 
You know, you were touching on, you and Cruz both mentioned the action. Um, and I feel like after watching Parasite and then going into this, I definitely think that you see a lot of qualities. Like, it just feels like Bong Joon-ho's, like, his directorial style is, it feels like almost like Parasite mixed with a production company that wanted this movie to be like a blockbustery style action movie. You know, it, whereas Parasite feels more like kind of like an elegant, like indie film almost. This feels like the production company was like, hey, we want you to make this movie and we want it to be a really good action movie. Um, whereas Bong Joon-ho was like, okay, I want to make a movie that has a really profound, you know, political message. But he didn't compromise on either side. Um, you know, he made a really fun, entertaining action movie and also one that has, you know, overt political messages that I think no matter, you know, how you identify yourself or affiliate yourself uh, politically, I definitely think it's worthwhile to think about. Um, you know, the, one of the biggest things that I think the movie has as far as strengths go is the symbolism. And Cruz mentioned that as well. It's something that Bong Joon-ho, you know, he's, he's really, really good at as far as things that I've noticed in watching this in Parasite. You know, just the imagery that he uses, because obviously power is a big um, element in the film and about how those with power, um, you know, oppress those that don't, um, to keep it very simple. Um, I think of a scene basically in the middle of the movie. I think one scene that really stood out to me is the scene where they're eating the sushi um, in the cart. Uh, once they've kind of broken through, um, you know, their back carts there. Um, the camera kind of pans around while they're in this really nice dining area and you've got all these people in these tattered clothes and they've got dirt all over their faces um, and they're eating, you know, high class sushi basically in the middle of the apocalypse. Um, but the camera kind of pans over and you see the window looking out into like this shipyard wreckage. Um, and it, it kind of just continues to pan over as you're watching these people eat sushi prepared, you know, fresh right in front of them by the chef juxtaposed with like uh, the shipyard wreckage right outside. Um, that's, that's one example of kind of the imagery he uses just showing how, how closely, you know, the poor, you know, are in terms of physical location to those that are affluent and have wealth, um, you know, showing that while they are so close together, they're also extremely far away in terms of, you know, the things that they have and possess. Um, so that, that's just one example, but you know, it's, it, it is, um, it's a movie that gets its message across without becoming pretentious. You're not going to leave the movie without having experienced, you know, or being made aware of these political themes. You know, they, they're not, Bong Joon-ho is not trying to hide these in like a, you know, allegorical way. Um, you know, they're, they're front and center and you can't help but watch this movie and not be aware of them, but it's done. It, it's encased in such an entertaining, like thrilling movie that I don't think anyone's going to leave this movie. Like regardless of affiliation, like I said, I don't think anybody's going to leave this movie thinking, wow, that was just a really pretentious political movie. You know, they're going to think, wow, that was a really fun movie and it had a worthwhile message. Um, so yeah, I, I I definitely was a fan of how he pulled it off. Um, uh, do you guys have any other thoughts on that? I did want to I did want to mention that uh, 
like the fact that he can make a movie with political themes and they're very overt and yet never I think the great thing about his movies and it's kind of what you're tapping into about him not being pretentious because that's like a lot of his movies that I've seen from him now uh, like he's really good at having uh, metaphors and symbolism but it never feels like it's like talking down to you um, there's this one movie I really like called Killing Them Softly and that movie is a political allegory but it's so, despite me liking it it's so in your face that it does feel pretentious like it almost feels like they're talking down to you to the point where like you couldn't walk away from that movie without your political affiliation you know, being playing a big part into it but I do think you could watch any Bong Joon-ho movie uh, despite your political affiliation that's really saying a lot because this movie has, uh, Jake said Marxist undertones. I mean, like this movie has a lot of just like, if you, the, I mean, at least the way I take the movie, I mean, it's like a downright attack current economic system that we have in America right now. I mean, it's very like, uh, very great. It's a lot more aggressive of a, of a political message than something like, uh, Parasite, because even Parasite, like Parasite is a kind of a criticism of social structures and stuff like that, but it's not as, um, it, it, no one's painted as a bad guy in Snowpiercer, but not, I'm sorry, in, in a Parasite, but in Snowpiercer, like there are bad guys and the way that the movie kind of ends, it does kind of have this uh, much more like revolutionary message, but yet yeah. it's never like, never feel like it's enough to turn off someone who's not with the who's not like along for the message makes sense yeah i agree with that like snowpiercer and parasite definitely have kind of the same themes but like you said snowpiercer in my mind is much more of a eat the rich type message where it is like you said a complete revolution you know the the train kind of represent the ending and uh we're going to get into spoilers a little bit here uh but, you know, the train and the ending of the movie, the train crashes and the train threat is kind of a representation of Earth. And to me, the whole message of the movie, like you kind of touched upon, Cruz, is that, you know, in order to, you know, fix our social structure, we basically have to ditch the whole thing and start over. And that kind of kind of shows in the symbolism of the ending of the movie with the, you know, the train crashes and everything's reset. And that's kind of the message of the movie to me is that, you know, in order for our social structure to to change how it needs to change in the mind of uh, the director is that it needs to just be completely overhauled. I was I was going to say, I guess if if we all want to, we can get into like our interpretation of the movie. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, I, I figure the movie is about them wanting to people in the lowest economic strata on the train start a revolution hoping to get to the front and actually change working within the system within the train but then they realize that the only way to actually fix it is to destroy the train which is the system it's very 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 and then also on top of that when, when the big twist at the end when you find out that uh a leader of their rev of the upper class what do they call it? They call them. Uh, it's are they economy? Because they, were, I think they refer to middle class as economy. Yeah, they called them uh, first class passengers, I believe. Yeah. I think. Um, 
it, it, it even comes out that John Hurt, like the leader of the lower class revolution, like was even in cahoots with the head of the train because they wanted to provoke a revolution uh, so they can thin out the herd, as they say. So like it even like, I mean, it's a really rebel. I mean, like, it even says like it says that. And I'm not saying that I'm like, I don't want to get super political on on the podcast. But I mean, it is kind of saying that in, in Bong Joon-ho's opinion. Uh, like capitalist systems breed revolutions on purpose to make people think that they have a chance at fixing the system and there's the only way to fix it is to destroy it i think that's pretty much the message i got from this movie yeah uh, i'm sorry well i definitely agree and i think that it is a really solid message however you choose to view you know the current system in america you know it's throughout the movie. The one thing that I kept focusing on is as, as Curtis, our main character and, you know, the other protagonists make it further and further into the train, you know, uncovering more and more atrocities and, you know, just wrongful things, you know, as as they're discovering these things, you also find out, you know, ways in which their efforts are more and more futile um, you know, and even when even when he makes it to the front of the train, you know, and you find out all these things from, uh, you know, Wilford played by Ed Harris, you know, once he kind of dumps the biggest, you know, hardship of all on him, it, it, it kind of just it, the message is more profound in that, you know, we know and you know that this system has flaws, but you can't really do anything about it. And I think that it kind of reminds me of times where you know, how many times can you think of when you've seen, you know, an article or something on either social media or just reading the news and you see something where like, oh, that's a that's a bad thing or that's something that, you know, shouldn't happen. But then you kind of had that realization that, oh, I can't really do anything about this. Like the system is how it is and it's designed that way on purpose. And I think that that's definitely what Bong Joon-ho was wanting to kind of portray is that even when even when the lowest of the low, you know, think that they are making a difference, you know, it's, it's not even touching the ones that are really behind all behind everything. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that message, it was, it's, it's one that needs to be, you know, I, I think discussed and talked about, and I think he did a really good job. Um, one thing I think that we were talking about with Parasite as a comparison, this movie kind of feels like, I know that this movie obviously was made before Parasite, but it kind of feels like if Parasite was a book, like this, this would be the movie that, like an allegorical movie that was made kind of about Parasite. It, it kind of feels like an extension, a more dramatic, like Hollywood version of Parasite almost. Um, so yeah, I, I was a huge fan of that. And I definitely think that if Bong Joon-ho wants to keep making movies with this profound message, you know, I'll, I'll keep watching because, you know, it's, he definitely knows, he definitely knows how to get his point across without, without seeming overbearing. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's a couple things I want to touch back on. And I think that he does a really good job in certain scenes of making this message clear. You know, there's a lot of talk of, especially at the end from uh, Wilford, is is that you know everybody has their preordained position 
and that's kind of the means that they use or he uses to control the whole entire train. And you kind of see that one scene that really stood out to me was uh, the scene with the classroom with all the little kids. Oh yeah. The teacher is, you know, they're being pretty much brainwashed and taught that, you know, this is just how it works. People are, you're in this position. The people in the back of the train are in that position. That's where they belong. This is where you belong. And that's, you know, that's one means of how they control, control the people. And then obviously he has the whole separate cart that they have to go through with the police force that represents, you know, the repressive state, another means of controlling the people. If, if the first ideological uh, style of controlling the people doesn't work, then you have the brute force. And then obviously there's the people higher up that represent the 1% that's really controlling everything. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's definitely commentary on how, you know, how our social structure is with, you know, 1% of the population controls most of the wealth and the other 99% are, you know, the working force. And I, I just thought that, you know, he does a really good job of, you know, portraying that theme. And like you guys said, it's not, it's not pretentious. It's not heavy handed. He, he walks the a very thin line that makes the movie really, really work in my mind. And, you know, like, like we talked about, he hides it in what, you know, really seems like a modern blockbuster. Um, it's got thrilling action, but it's got these really, really themes that are apparent throughout the movie that just really kind of sit with you and make you think. Um, well, at least it made me think, you know, it's a movie that I watched it, you know, I think it was Monday or Tuesday night, and I've, I've thought about it ever since. It's just one of those movies that really sits with you, and I think Parasite does the same thing. Uh, it's just not, it's just not as extreme with its message as this one is. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and I think another thing that's even more interesting is that he shows you early on in the movie that just because you know, just because someone is in a position of perceived power, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter if they are not if they don't have enough power, like Tilda Swinton's character, Mason, you know, is an easy to hate, you know, antagonist. But once, you know, they kind of like secure her and like basically handcuff her, you know, you realize that, you know, she doesn't have a lot of power. She, she's, and when they confront her about, you know, making Wilford come to rescue her, you know, she flat out says, you know, he's not going to come here. Like she knows, she knows that, her place in the system is, is it, it's, it's more important, you know, to them than it would be if she was in the back of the train. But at the end of the day, she's just another piece that's expendable. Um, and I think that's another powerful aspect as well, that even when you're not at the top, you know, you can be above someone on, you know, a perceived ladder, but if you're not at the top, you know, at the end of the day, you're still expendable uh, to them. Really, it's just a puppet, just a means to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think one of the more powerful examples of, you know, Bong Joon-ho's like commentary on how someone's mind or view could be warped by like either money or power um, is really at the end when uh, Wilford is talking to Curtis, you know, after he's revealed that, 
you know, Gilliam was in on that. And I want to ask a question about that in a second, but after he has kind of like broken Curtis down um, and he's just kind of laying it all out there for him and you can tell he's definitely trying to manipulate Curtis um, and bring him over to his side. But uh, after, after he kind of leaves him at the front of the train there to, to think for a minute and Curtis uh, Curtis and Yona discover, you know, the panel on the floor where Timmy is down there, you know, basically helping the, tr- basically helping the train keep moving. Uh, and he's down there playing the part of a machine. Um, I think one of the more powerful examples of how power can kind of, or at least how Bong Joon-ho is describing how power can corrupt you is that, you know, Wilford, you could argue, you know, depending on how you interpret the scene, you could argue that Wilford had really kind of broken through Curtis. And it, it, it's interesting to think that maybe Curtis was thinking about, you know, maybe he was thinking about uh, taking him up on his offer and being in charge of the train. But Wilford is so corrupted by his position that he doesn't even he doesn't even hesitate to make mention of how the kids are beneath the floor and basically just talking about them as if they're not real people, um, which sets Curtis off. So I think that was a really key decision on Bong Joon-ho's part to show that, you know, Wilford is not, you know, he doesn't have this second layer to him. He, he, he is who he is. And the fact that he let his guard, he kind of let his guard down and just, said something that we as the audience all know is going to provoke Curtis. Um, I think it just speaks to how, you know, his viewpoint of the world and humanity at that point was just so far gone from what, you know, we would all think. Um, and I think that was a pretty bold decision uh, to make on Bong Joon-ho's part. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that you guys brought up. Um, I do agree. I do think he was a, uh much considering joining uh, Harris's character. I forget his name. Um, uh, Wilford. Yeah, he was uh, thinking about joining Wilford. I think it's until he's reminded and he sees the child labor and it kind of reminds him. That's what kind of brings him back into it. But I do think he was definitely considering it. Uh, back, one thing back to Jake is uh yeah and I think probably probably my favorite scene might be in the classroom. Uh I, I love that classroom scene. I think that's like I think that's like the scene that really makes it like the most apparent. I think that's when it gets almost like the most like overt with its political message because it pretty much says that education has been corrupted by the system. And when it because I mean you were talking about how it it tells them that they're all going to die if they're not, or that everyone has a position in the system. But it also like only scares them into thinking that like they can't live, you know, outside of the system. I'm pretty sure in the educational video, uh, it says that it's continuing to get worse out there. But then you find out later on that it's actually coming. Uh, it's getting easier and easier to live out, uh, outside the train. Like they they. Uh, address that the snow is actually melting. Um, but in the in the video or in the in the classroom, like there's the whole the kids start singing the song that we're all going to die if we go outside. And they also treat Wilford as this hero, and that's like a big thing that I think Hong uh, Jun Ho is trying to get across. That you know, in this like under the system, when they educate you, 
They're trying to scare you into being afraid to go outside of the system they have in place and that the person in place who really is kind of oppressing you is, is really like this hero. That was a very interesting. And I think that's like, I think that's really in the movie where political themes are most like overt and like really like coming out into the open. But yeah, I mean, I, I loved all that though. I thought it was really clever. I, I loved, uh, I loved Tilda Swinton in this movie. I like the fact that she dies at the point that she does. Cause uh, I remember back in the social network episode, I remember uh, Matthew brought up a point that in the social network, he, he likes how every scene when you want a character to kind of get their, uh, get their, uh, back or you know when someone does a character wrong and you want to see them and get revenge it happens you don't have to wait till the end of the movie and you know the big scene with the guns not being extinct and uh tilda swinton kind of turns on them like you really just like you're so mad at her and like you really just want them to finally finish her off and i feel like in most movies the uh, main character would go well no we got to bring her with us just in case and like then she just would continue to make trouble for them but like no he just straight up goes up and just kills her right off. And I found that kind of like, kind of shocked me, but I like that. I like that Bong Joon-ho is willing to just like, you know, keep you guessing. He never, he never gets predictable with his movies, even when you think it's about to be. Yeah. That's a good point too, because like you said, a typical movie, you know, the, the main character you said would carry them, carry that person to the very end. Well, you know, another thing that stands out to me is that Curtis is not your typical main character i mean he's not a he's definitely not a hero especially after you find out some of the things that he's done in his past so is you definitely can't call him a hero and i thought you know that was a really that that was part of the movie that didn't fully work for me the the final reveal about his character and the really the whole well i i really like the themes that he's going for towards the end when he finally does get to Wilford Ed Harris's character. I think it gets a little exposition heavy where he, you know, he does the typical bad guy explains everything. And that's one of my, one of my problems with the movie, but yeah, the overall it's, it's very good. And, you know, we didn't even touch on, touch on the environmental message of the movie, you know, it's because that definitely exists, especially at the ending. And I was, that's something I was interested to get you guys' opinion on. What What did you think of the very end of the movie? I thought it was really good. Um, I think the symbolism, uh, the thing that kind of left me thinking about, you know, when um, when Timmy and Yona like exit the train and the scene, the image of them like holding hands and looking up at the polar bear um, is just really powerful. Um, I think it was a, it was a deliberate choice to i mean thematically it fit to have you know curtis and uh nam you know basically sacrifice themselves uh i think thematically that worked um to the movie but also i think leaving yona and timmy to exit the train um you know yona obviously being um you know a person of color that's also a female and then having timmy be a young African-American boy, um, I definitely think that that was a deliberate choice and having them kind of like, you know, just linked there, holding hands. Um, I think that was a profound kind of message that, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, 
you know, these these people are the ones that are being, you know, oppressed by the system. And I think Bong Joon-ho, that's what he was going for. Um, but like you said, the environmental messages, uh, I mean, we could have, you know, we could have spent the last 30 minutes talking just about that as the political uh, message, because it, it, it does, uh, it is twofold. Um, but I thought it was a really positive way to end a movie that was, you know, at times, you know, at times really bleak, at times really, you know, gruesome. Um, I thought it was a really, really stark shift in tone, and I, and I really did like it. Cruz, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I actually liked the the whole like final. Uh, like I liked all of the end of the movie. I understand um why the ending would be like kind of a. I can understand why like when enjoyed the ending when it gets really exposition heavy, just because like that is kind of a point where the movie slows down and then just like all the big twists that Wilford throws on you. Um, I can forgive it just because I was already so invested into the story. And I think like what he says does kind of drop the bigger point home. I do think it's yeah, important. when he's. I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't, I don't hate it. It just, it didn't work as well as I, I wanted it to. I understand that. Yeah, I get that. Um, pers- personally, it didn't bother me because I was just so invested in the movie, and I and I did like, and I, I felt like it was important to the themes. Um, the ending I really, really liked, and I do think it was a <clears throat> very interesting choice to not only have um, last two people be a man and a woman. Kind of gave me like Adam and Eve vibes, honestly. Yeah, I, I like that too. Um, because it's also they were also train babies. It establishes like they had never lived in like outside of the train at that time. So, like this is genuinely like a whole new world to them. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting, and I and I liked the in, in the environmental messages. It felt like something that could probably actually happen. They decide to put some type of chemical in the atmosphere in hopes to curb the current situation we have going on right now, and it only make it worse shock me that does kind of kind of fit the theme of humanity we cause all these problems and then we we think we can fix them and you know maybe we can maybe we can't but that remains to be seen but yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think you can look at the ending as as hopeful or you can also see it on the other side of the coin where this is basically right. two kids that are now tasked with, you know, living in a completely frozen world. Obviously, we see that not can carry on, but you know, it's definitely an uphill battle for them, and you can't be sure that they're going to be able to survive and repopulate the Earth. Especially since you know, they're the boy Timmy's his name, correct? Thanks, Timmy. Yeah, he's only five years old, so you know they're definitely facing an uphill battle. So I think. Like Matthew said, you can look at it as a positive ending, or you can see it in more of a bleak way. And I think, you know, as a fan of um, ambiguous endings, I I really like that. I love ambiguous endings. Yeah, I like the ending, and I do like that you can see it in a good or bad way. Um, I guess that also kind of helps with the political message too, because you know, depending on your depending on on how you feel about the political message, you could the movie the ending in a good way and think that it's uh that it's like an important revolutionary movie or if you're really against the idea of the movie you could say it's a cautionary tale and that the ending is bad 
though. I mean, like it, it kind of gives you your options. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely read into it as uh, anarchy destroyed what little balance of life they had on the train. You know, obviously, that's not an ideal way to live, but they did have some kind of life that was going on. Whether you know it was definitely not the optimal way to live, but because of the anarchy that goes on throughout the movie and maybe life itself is gone because of it. So yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely multiple ways to look at it. And I think that's a good thing. And the acting is great too. I want to bring up the acting too. Cause I think, uh, I don't, uh, a lot of people don't really look at Chris Evans. I feel like as a, as a, like a, a great actor, just because he's mainly known for Captain America movies. And that's just like one performance. And, Recently, too, with Knives Out, I feel like he might get a little more respect as an actor, but he was really great in this. Like, even the, the scene he, where he kind of reveals his past, um, I mean, his acting in that scene is fantastic. Um, and also, shout out to, I'm going to butcher his name, but Song Kang Ho, who uh, plays uh, Nam Goong. I, I know I butchered that. Um, yeah, they, I think they just call him Nom for the most part. Um, yeah, uh, such a great actor. He was fantastic in Parasite, and he's fantastic in. This. Um, I, didn't, I didn't even recognize him in Parasite at first. I didn't realize it was the same actor as the dad. Yeah, I didn't yeah. either. It, it took um, me a little bit, but then I, I, as I watched it more, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's him. But yeah, I'm glad you brought up the acting because I didn't want to. I didn't want to end the podcast without uh, mentioning how good Chris Evans is in this movie, and the cast is just super solid. I mean, you know, Ed Harris is great. Uh, what little screen time he has, you know, Song Kang Ho is obviously really good, and Tilda Swinton, uh, Octavia Spencer, uh, and even uh, Ko Asung, if I'm probably butchering that, as Yona was really good. Um, but there was one thing I was gonna touch on. Uh, before we got too far away from it, uh, kind of going out of, you know, leaving the political commentary a little bit. Um, I will say that my one complaint with the movie was how they handled the kind of character arc for Curtis towards the end of the movie. Um, you know, his acting in that scene where he kind of bears all uh, to Nam when they're waiting outside the door, you know, his acting is amazing in that scene. But I definitely think that the pacing of his arc was kind of rushed at that point. You know, I, I definitely think it kind of loses a little bit of impact, at least for me, when he's the one telling us this, or at least all of this information. Like, if they could have found a way to kind of space out some of these details of his character earlier on in the movie, I think it would have had a little more impact. Um, you know, because between that and then, you know, 10 minutes later, you get the payoff uh, when he's in, you know, he's in the front of the train with Wilford. Um, I just feel like if they would have spaced that out a little more and made it a more through, made it a bigger through line throughout without spoiling, you know, the obvious big payoff about the origin of his character, I think it could have worked a little better for me, but that's pretty much the only complaint I had as well. And to touch on the, the ending scene that you talked about, um, how you felt about the exposition the exposition in the end. I was fine with it as well because I think like Cruz said, you know, it it warranted it a little bit because there were so many unanswered questions. And I think it, it did teeter on the line of being a little bit too much, but overall I think it was fine. Uh and there was one question I wanted to ask. Um 
you know, we find out from Wilford. I just wanted to ask this because it was kind of the main thing I was thinking about after the movie. Um, you know, Wilford claims that Gilliam um, was kind of in on it the entire time. Now, I think the way that it's structured, I think it kind of leaves it up to interpretation almost. Now, I know that in the movie, Curtis obviously believes it based on how he reacts. But I wanted to get you guys, your guys' opinion. Uh, one, do you think Gilliam was actually in on it? And if he was, do you think that that kind of cheapens the you know, emotional connection that he had? Or do you think it was warranted because it kind of, it, it helps, because it definitely helps the overall like political message of the movie. But do you think that that was worth it to kind of undermine the emotional connection between the characters? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I definitely think that, you know, it, it showed that there was a means of communicating with the back of the train because it showed the one character you know, answer the phone from the very yeah. back. Um, now, whether it, it cheapened, uh, you know, Gilliam's whole meaning of a character, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I definitely think that it was necessary to really fit the theme of, you know, they really talk about balance. So it makes sense that, to maintain the balance of the train, you have one leader in the front and one leader in the back, uh, just kind of working together to maintain that perfect balance that uh, Wilford claims that needs to happen in order for the train to continue to move, uh, operate. So, yeah, that's that's very definitely a very good question. It's one that I don't really think I can answer because uh, I, I I see it both ways. Uh, what do you think, Cruz? Uh, yeah, it is a good question. I, personally, I do think he was in on it, especially with like the little thing where it shows the phone where they've been talking to each other. I do think he's in on it, and um, I think I think just because that that's like him being in on it is such a important part of the, in my opinion, like the allegory. I think I think when you kind of realize that revolutions in this system are planned. Because they want people in the lower class to die so they can be thinned. I think that's like a really important, it's like that drives the whole, like the system has to be collapsed. Like you can't and that, have and like a in order for the, the lower, the lower half to do their job. They have to have some semblance of hope that they can potentially move up the rung. So that's exactly, yeah. another, another means of controlling them is giving them that small, uh, small bit of hope that you know that they can change their circumstances otherwise if there's no hope they just give up and then they don't they don't keep the train running the, that balance falls in and you know ultimately the whole the whole system collapses uh, yeah and i think that's so important to like ending because I, I i do think the message bong joon ho is trying to give is that you can't fix a system you can't fix a system from the inside you have to just completely eradicate it and start new i think like williams reveal is like that's like the real thing that really drives that point home is that like your revolutions are, are pointless and was all part of the plan and um in terms of cheapening i can understand if it if it like another person's personal experience it kind of cheapens it um but like i said i'm okay with it because i think it that's important to the story and i think that kind of i think that kind of 
if you kind of if someone becomes upset with finding out like Gilliam is like a traitor, I think that's that kind of also helps emulate that feeling that Chris Evans' character feels. It kind of puts you there, Chris Evans' feelings. Actually, though, the one thing I will say, and this is where I kind of agree with Matthew, is if there's one issue that I do have with the movie, I would say uh, the pace of Chris Evans' art, especially because <laughs> you you it moved so fast that I almost didn't believe that he was about to turn and join because he's he he gives this huge speech about like the literal hell that he had to suffer uh, on the back of that train. And and then that, like, his mentor who inspired him to do this revolution was a traitor. So for him just to kind of almost be, like, in a snap, like, oh, okay, well, then I'll probably join you. I didn't believe that. Once again, it was cool that he sees the child labor, and then it kind of, like, kind of reignites that light. But with everything that they go through on that train... Just that kind of oh well I'm gonna turn on a, on like a whim like I guess I'll join him I kind of didn't believe that's like my one issue with the movie even though they do kind of like he decides not to go through with it yeah I, I think that that part kind of works more than the scene where he's kind of giving his own backstory just because you know at that point you know that Curtis believes everything that Wilfred just told him so you can understand why he would be so emotionally just damaged. Um, I think I think it really just comes down to the scene where he's talking to Nam about, you know, everything that he did that led him to where he is. Because the only the really the only hints we get about things that he did is at the very beginning of the movie when he's talking to Gilliam and, you know, he's talking about how um it's not Edgar, um is it Andrew that's his friend's name? Is, is, was that his name? Uh, sure about, I know who you're talking about. Well, basically, the the only the only yeah. inkling we get of his kind of like arc is that you know he shouldn't idolize me. You know he doesn't know who I really am, and like we get that. And then there's kind of just like another conversation that he and Gilliam have when they're sleeping one night. You know, kind of about how you know Curtis has to be the leader that they need you know regardless of the circumstance you know we we have that there but to go from that to and i feel like we've spoiled enough already but you know to go from that to having curtis basically just lay all of it out there to nom about how he was going to you know kill a baby and you know he tried to cut his own arm off like i just all of that happened so quickly and it to, for us to not know any of that and then to know all of it in a span of like 30 seconds, it's just really jarring. Not that Curtis was, you know, the perfect protagonist by any means. It's not like he went from being a completely pure character to, you know, that right there. But it, it did just seem like a lot at once uh, for me. Because as we see in the movie, you know, he's not a he's not a lawful neutral character you know one of the one of my i think my favorite scene in the movie um just to finish this point um about his character my favorite scene in the movie is when they're in the you know the the mat like they're in the mask fight scene um and he looks back to see you know his friend you know being held at knife point but then he also sees you know mason tilda swinton's character you know potentially about to get away 
and you see in that moment that he makes the decision, you know, the greater good decision. Like he's, he knows that if Tilda Swinton gets away, you know, there's a very big chance that their, their whole kind of revolution falls apart because they don't have that pressure anymore. Uh, if they have her, you know, kind of in their ranks or, or whatever. So I think when he chose to not save his friend or not, back down really in that moment that that was really powerful to me and that was that was probably my favorite part um but yeah that was kind of a complaint but then i ended it with you know a compliment that i really liked about his character so i just had to get that out there yeah and i think what y'all are saying is it really puts my complaint into better words what y'all are saying is basically what i was trying to get across um it just felt like too much all at once for me and that's why it didn't work as much as I as I wanted it to. And like y'all said, it's definitely necessary. Like especially the Wilford part is it's necessary to get across the whole message of the movie. It just I, I wish that it would have I don't know, been a little more spaced out there at the end. Like you said, maybe if Curtis's arc would have been, you know, we got more throughout the movie. And we did get hints. But if, you know, that that kind of payoff would have came sooner, that reveal, I feel like it would have been a little bit more effective. But, you know, that's ultimately just a nitpick because I really did enjoy the movie. So, I think it, I think the only way you could have handled it differently is if not not that I'm the one to tell Bond, you know, how to direct a movie. But I think that if the audience knew about the story of the, the people with the knives and the baby, um and the mother, like, I think if we would have known about that story earlier in the movie, like maybe have like Curtis tell Nam that story, but not tell him the truth. And then if you have the moment at at the door, at the last gate where he reveals that he was the one with the knife, I think maybe that's a way you could have done it. But yeah, yeah. like to hear all of it at once was very, uh, very tough for me. And it, it's tricky because, you know, what they reveal about Curtis's character is something that, if you hear that early in the movie, then you're not going to be able to pull for this character. Oh, yeah. There's no way. So, you know, the more we talk about it, the more I talk myself into the ending, kind of working more than I first thought. Uh, but, you know, there really might not have been a better way to do it. I'm interested. Cruz, do you, do you see a better way? or? Um, I don't know. I was... Per, um, I feel like I just... It's one of those things where, like, I understand having issue with the ending and people also loving the ending because i loved it i was already so on board with it that i was like i even liked his his monologue where he talks to uh Nam. um but at the same time i could just like i could understand though that like the pacing of his arc i don't know i guess it was just kind of a tricky situation given the unconventional story um but it's one of those things where like i can understand someone being really let down with the ending how the arc pans out and people like loving it because from what I've gathered what seems to be the biggest complaint about this movie from people like from the complaints I have seen is the ending and how it all comes together so it's just one of those things where it, it's like could have been like a you know a lose-lose situation in terms of, of, of what he had to do with the ending. But I was, I was already on board with the movie and I, I loved the ending. The only really thing that kind of got me was uh, when he first started to kind of turn over to Ed Harris's character, I wasn't necessarily convinced, but other than that, 
and like and I think also like what what Jake said though is like even even if I even though like I'm saying this is like a complaint, it's like a nitpick because the movie just like pulls you in like to the point where it's like I feel like what would I feel like what we're talking about should be a lot bigger issue than it is, but it's because he just does such a great job at getting you on board with this movie. And I think this movie kind of shows one of the best qualities about Bong Joon Ho, and that's how he can he can he can pretty much tell a story visually. I feel like uh, aside from a couple key scenes, mainly in the end, and I can see why maybe that's why the end kind of gets people because up until the end, like you could almost turn the volume off and understand the story because he's so good at telling things visually. Like even when Matthew was talking about the scene where he was looking at Tilda Swinton's character about to get away and then look back at, at uh, Edgar's character about to, you know, be killed. Like, he's able to, to show that entire inner conflict through just visuals alone. Like, and that's the thing that I've noticed watching some Bong Joon-ho movies is he can just tell a story visually. Like it's nothing. Um, he, he does such a good job with, with really letting like the, the medium, he uses the medium to like its best effect in my opinion. Yeah, I mean it's the number one. You know, one of the top priorities of you know telling a story is to you know show me, don't tell me, and he does he does that perfectly. Uh, and I I do have to say that that uh, my complaint about the movie definitely doesn't break it for me, and it doesn't it didn't take me out of the movie. I just think that you know I liked everything else so much that that was easily probably the only thing that stuck out as something that I wasn't totally a fan of. Um, but all good points. All, all really good points. Uh, are we ready to assign uh, a rating to this? I think so. I'm ready. Okay, I'll just go ahead and go first. Um, you know, this movie was really entertaining. Um, it was a lot. I knew, you know, going into it, there were going to be those political messages that we've discussed here today. Um, but I, you know, did not expect it to be as well done and well executed as it was. Um, I'm sad that more people didn't see this movie because I feel like if it, you know, would have caught a better maybe marketing uh, kind of channel, you know, maybe it would have it would have performed super well because I, I definitely think that this is a movie that general audiences um, would have really enjoyed. Um, not saying that it completely flopped. I'm not. I don't have the box office numbers off the top of my head, but I, I definitely, you know, I want more people to see this movie because I think it's really good. But I think you don't have to have, you know, a PhD in social theory to understand it at all. So um, I'm going to give it a four and a four point five, four and a half out of five. I think it's really, really solid. Um, you know, the character arc issue I had with Curtis there at the end, I think, is the only thing kind of keeping me from giving it like a a perfect five, but everything else is done super well. So I think four and a half, four and a half is where it's going to have to live there. Yeah. Um, I'll go, I'll go next. I went into it thinking that I was going to give this movie a four, but you guys have kind of taught me into it. And in a way I've taught myself into it, it's also getting a four and a half for me. Um, you know, I mentioned a couple of the two negatives I had were just, really nitpicks we talked about the ending and i said you know sometimes the cgi took me out of it just a little bit but uh, overall that has nothing to do with the story um so yeah it's getting a four and a half for me mainly because you know if you can if a movie sits with you like it like this one does with me 
And it's made me think about so many different things, you know, the political aspects of it, um, determinism, which is, you know, something that has been fresh on my mind because I've recently watched Dads. Well, this movie goes into it too with, you know, talking about talking about your pre the preordained position of people. And it just really has me thinking about a lot of different things. And it's a movie that, you know, at the same time is super entertaining, has great action and can appeal to anyone. So, yeah, it's getting a four and a half for me. And I just plead with you, if you're not familiar with Bong Joon-ho, please go watch his movies because he's, you know, it's, I don't want to call him the next big thing because he's been around for a while. But, I mean, he is an incredible filmmaker. And I, I really feel like that he's only got more to give us. You know, his, I don't know that, you know, it's going to be hard to top a movie like Parasite, but I don't think there's going to be a severe decline in quality. He's going to keep pumping out really good stuff. So I really recommend that you get familiar with him. Uh, watch Snowpiercer, watch Parasite, and, you know, watch his other works because he is a, a, a force of a filmmaker. And I really look forward to what he does next. Oh yeah, um, uh, yeah. Uh, given a score, um, <laughs> I, I'm I, I kind of feel bad because I keep giving uh, so far. I've given every movie that we've reviewed a five out of five. But also, I my scores only go one, two, three, four, five. Um, I don't do the halves just because I. I'm terrible with rating systems anyway, and then the more like options I add, I become more indecisive. But I have to stick to just like five options. But um, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna actually give it a five, just because despite some of the nitpicks, this movie got me so on board, and there's so much. I just, I want like to me, this is like my gold standard for action movies. I want more action movies to be like this. I want a movie that has spectacular action and is also very smart, well put together, understands its medium, tell a story almost completely visually, can also grab an emotional connection. This is just what I want out of action films. And more and more I've been watching Bong Joon-ho, like this guy is really kind of moving up there, like in my favorite filmmakers of all time. Like he's kind of moving up there in the... Thomas Anderson, Cohen brother, Alfonso Cuaron range for me. Because I can say now I'm giving this movie a five out of five, and this is also my least favorite Bong Joon Ho movie that I've seen from him so far. And what Jake was saying, he is a force. He's an incredible director. And if anyone who will listen to this podcast has not gotten into him yet, please get into him because almost his entire filmography is streaming right now. Because Snowpiercer and Ocha are both on Netflix, and his movies Parasite, um, The Host, Mother, and um, Barking Dogs Never Bite are all on Hulu. He's only made eight films. Oh, no, wait. He's only made seven films, and six of those are streaming. So, like, if anyone who is going to listen to who's listened to this is has not watched any of his movies, or only like watched one or two, oh on Hulu and Netflix to start watching his movies. Cause like he, he's one of the, like he's one of those to me that just understands like this medium better than, than most people working today. He's to me, he's up there with those Alfonso Caron's and, and Paul Thomas Anderson's. But yeah. I'm giving this a five. 
Yeah, and I agree with both of you there. I mean, like Jake said, he's been around for a while, but I definitely think that after all the success that Parasite had, I definitely think that, you know, more companies are going to start throwing money at him uh, to make, you know, anything and everything. You know, I don't know where his head is at as far as what he what direction he wants to go, but I feel like he's about to have free reign over anything he wants to do. Um, so I'm excited to see where he goes as well. Yeah, I want to just add one more thing too. Is I want to encourage people to not let the language barrier uh, persuade you not to watch a film just because something's in a foreign language. You know, I, I can understand the reluctance to want to watch something and read it in subtitles, but I've got to say, two of the best movies that I've seen in the last few years are foreign language films, and that's Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So I really encourage people to go out on that whim and watch watch movies in other languages that you wouldn't typically watch because you know that's a whole nother medium of films that you're missing out on. That have they these are directors that have great stories to tell and have messages they want to get across. So just don't let the don't let the language barrier scare you away from watching something. So yeah, that's that's just the one thing I wanted to add right there. Oh yeah, that's no. a super good point. I definitely agree with the language barrier. And if, if it's like easier, look for filmmakers who are foreign language filmmakers, but they've made English language movies and start there and go on. It's like, Hong Joon Ho's a great director, Alejandro Ginaritu, Park Chan Wook, and Alfonso Caron. They're great filmmakers and they've made, you know, films in their native language, which isn't English, but they've also made some some English language films, which could be a good accessible way of kind of getting started. Yeah, I agree with Jake. Don't don't let the language barrier in the way because I agree with Jake. Some of the best movies I've seen in the last couple of years have been foreign language movies. Um, I think I'm glad Parasite won. Um, I'm glad it was the first language movie to win an Oscar and get that kind of credit and recognition. I think Roma should have won 2018 personally, but I'm glad that like, I'm glad that foreign language films were kind of getting past that barrier uh, in Hollywood. I'm glad that, you know, they're starting to kind of put that out there more. Yeah. And just to throw my two cents on, on that as well, you know, when I went into Parasite, I think one of the more interesting aspects and, one thing that should motivate you to watch foreign films um, is that it's almost like, you know, you obviously know what a movie is and you've seen a movie before, but when you're watching something where you're having to read the subtitles, it almost makes you pay attention more to the, to the image on screen, you know, to everything that you're seeing, because, you know, you're used to kind of, I guess, passively watching movies like in your main native language that, maybe sometimes you can kind of be on your phone a little bit and kind of hear what's going on. But when you're having to pay attention to a movie and absorb everything in it, in its entirety, you know, when you can't help, but look away from the screen, I think it also makes you notice and take note of, you know, what's going on on screen. And it makes you experience the movie in a more personal way, I think. So definitely agree with that advice. I just want to say that. I agree with Matthew 100%. I think you hit the nail right on the head about making you pay more attention. I watch English language movies with subtitles just for that exact reason. Like, it really does make you pay more attention to the movie. Very, very true. Um, But I think that is where we are going to leave Snowpiercer for now. Uh, Definitely a worthwhile addition to uh, the Shift Talk 
uh, you know, movie collection here, the, the small movie collection that we have amassed so far. I definitely think it it, it was a uh, a worthy watch, and uh, please, please do give it a chance along with Bong Joon-ho's entire filmography. Uh, I will be doing that in the near future as well. Um, but with that, I think uh, that about wraps it up for today. Uh, we want to thank you all again if you've made it here uh, to the end. We want to just really say how appreciative we are of you know giving us the support, giving us a chance here, and listening us to uh, listening to us blather on about movies. So. Um, that about does it. You can find us on Twitter as always at shift talking. You can find us on Facebook at shift talk and follow us on Podbean If you do not have Apple podcasts, we're still working on Spotify, but Podbean is a reliable third party service for podcasts, Apple podcasts as well. Subscribe, give us a five-star rating if you're feeling nice. Um, and with that, I think that is all for today. And well, before we, we go, Matthew, yeah, kidding. I was about One to say, thing. yeah, for sure. We we need to reveal our next movie. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, do you want to do the honors for that? Yeah, I will. Um, our next movie, I believe, is the perfect quarantine movie, and that is uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Cloverfield universe, but uh, this is, in my opinion, the best movie in that small collection of movies. It's directed by. Dan Trachtenberg, and it came out in 2016. It's got a fantastic cast with uh, John Goodman and John Gallagher Jr. and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. So definitely really excited to talk about it. I believe, Matthew, you've seen the movie, and Cruz, you haven't, correct? Yeah, I've not. I've not seen it. But I, I thought it was funny that you said it was the best. I thought uh, Cloverfield Paradox was both. Well, you know, yeah. that movie belongs in its own category of greatness. You know, it's, not, it's not fair to, to compare just normal movies to a movie that is as good as The Cloverfield Paradox. I mean, well, that's what I was going to say is that in this small universe of films, you know, this is uh, probably easy, easily the best one, but it doesn't have a lot of stiff competition outside of the original uh Cloverfield, but yeah, I, I almost did uh, breeze right by that. But I, I did enjoy it uh, when I first saw it, just to give a small little, you know, peek as to how I feel about the movie. But that will be for next week. We will dive deep into that uh, and talk about it. And like you said, it is the perfect quarantine movie right now. It's, uh, you know, the whole movie is in a doomsday bunker. Uh, so hopefully you all are still, you know, in your doomsday bunkers as well. Uh, but, um, Gaza, do you have anything else uh, before we head out? No. It wraps it up. Oh, yeah. Watch well, Bong Joon-ho movies. Please do. Uh, but, guys, again, thank you so much for listening. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, Podbean, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, we do appreciate you uh, for all the support, and we will see you next time. Bye.